I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'm going to cover some of the content from the May edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover relates to the management of chronic pain. Chronic pain is complex and challenging, and often poorly recognised, poorly evaluated, and poorly managed, leading to unnecessary distress for children and families and to poor health outcomes. In a comprehensive review in this edition, Rajapaski and colleagues discuss the presentation and management. The review emphasises the complex pathophysiology whereby the severity and impact of chronic pain on everyday function is shaped by the complex interaction of biological, psychological and social factors that determine the experience of pain for each individual rather than a straightforward reflection of the severity of disease or the extent of tissue damage. This is a very engaging, thorough and comprehensive review. The authors discuss the biopsychosocial concept of chronic pain, the evidence base for management strategies and a best approach to overall care. Specific conditions including neuropathic pain, complex regional pain syndrome, musculoskeletal pain, abdominal pain and headache are discussed in some depth. It's helpful, it's up-to-date and it's relevant to everyday clinical practice. The second article I'd like to cover relates to the prevention of respiratory syncytial virus infection. It's well known that most babies will acquire RSV during infancy, which globally is estimated to be responsible for 33.8 million new lower respiratory tract infections per year in the under fives, with a significant mortality mostly in resource poor settings. In this issue, Murray and colleagues review the recent developments including safety, efficacy and cost-effectiveness of palivizumab prophylaxis, which is used in high-risk groups including prematurity, low birth weight and congenital heart disease. It isn't, however, universally available or affordable. The article also discusses potential candidate vaccines for active immunisation and new antiviral drugs being studied. The potential to impact on this common infection is exciting. Although, based on current knowledge and until a safe, affordable and effective vaccine is available, we need to continue to rely on population level approaches to prevent severe infection. This includes reducing prenatal and environmental risk factors such as prematurity and smoking and continuing to improve our overall hygiene practices. The third article I'd like to cover relates to the investigation and management of urinary tract infection. So this is a controversial topic and there has been much published guidance. So in this issue, Colthard and colleagues compare guidelines from the Royal College of Physicians, published in 1991, and NICE guidance, published in 2007. In essence, the NICE guidance is intended to improve the imaging efficiency 
by selecting higher risk cases. The authors recruited 427 children with confirmed first urinary tract infections and followed them from 2007 to 2011. In their analysis, they found that fewer children would have been examined according to NICE guidance, 150 versus 427, although the pickup of urinary tract abnormalities was less, 8 versus 32, with 5 of 9 children with scarring missed, including 3 with multiple scars and 1 with renal impairment. It's very interesting data. It's quite challenging to think this through, but it does emphasise the fact that the decisions regarding the investigation of urinary tract infection are complex, and in this article the authors advocate revision of the NICE guidance. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to improving healthcare in low-income countries. It's a constant challenge to improve healthcare in low-income countries, with considerable effort devoted to developing new recommendations and technologies to improve hospital care. It's not always the case that these new recommendations are implemented, and this is a healthcare phenomena worldwide. In this issue, Mike English and colleagues from Kenya explore their adoption using data collected on consistent panel indicators during four separate cross-sectional hospital surveys tracking changes over the last 10 years. The data are of interest and show progress has been made, with, for example, availability of specific feeds for severe malnutrition and the availability of vitamin K, although less progress has been made with facilities to, for example, monitor blood glucose for HIV testing and simple diagnostic and assessment tools like pulse oximetry. It's very interesting to work through this article. It's clear major gaps exist between potential and actual impacts of simple diagnostics and technologies, highlighting problems with availability, adoption and successful utilisation. If we are going to progress healthcare, this sort of data set is much needed and we need to action plan against it. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to meconium ileus, cholestasis and chronic liver disease in cystic fibrosis. The life expectancy for cystic fibrosis has improved considerably, with median survival now approaching 40 years. And with this, there's been a considerable increase in interest in the non-respiratory complications such as chronic liver disease. In this issue, Luan and colleagues report the incidence and outcomes of cholestasis and meconium ileus from their unit. They looked at 401 infants with cystic fibrosis presenting over 25 years, 69 of whom had meconium ileus. Cholestasis occurred in 23 out of 401, more commonly in infants with meconium ileus. Cholestasis resolved in all children. And longer term, most infants with cholestasis, 87%, and infants with meconium ileus, 
92.8%, did not develop cystic fibrosis-associated liver disease, with rates being similar to those seen in infants without meconiomalus or cholestasis. So this is an interesting observation in that although infants with meconiomalus have a significantly increased risk of developing cholestasis in infancy, this is not associated long-term with an increased risk of chronic liver disease. I would like to highlight two articles from Fetal and Neonatal this month. The first relates to data from the Epicure 2 study. Marlow and colleagues report perinatal outcomes for extremely preterm babies in relation to place of birth in England. Data is from a prospective cohort of births between 22 and 26 weeks gestation. And the data set shows that survival was significantly greater in specialist hospitals providing neonatal intensive care further improved by higher activity services, although interestingly, despite this data set, only 56% of births were in this setting. The improvement was primarily achieved by a reduction in fetal deaths before delivery and in neonatal deaths in the delivery room and during the first week. This is a data set that has implications for the future planning of neonatal services and is discussed in detail in the paper with two excellent accompanying editorials. In the second paper that I would like to highlight, this issue of variation in outcome is explored from a different angle by Gallagher and colleagues who report European variation in decision-making and parental involvement during preterm birth. That's quite emotive, it's very challenging. The authors report that there was little consensus as to how active intervention after birth at 22 to 25 weeks gestation is managed, with variable parental involvement and country being the biggest contributor towards whether or not active care is undertaken at extremely preterm gestation. The authors highlight country as the factor, although I do suspect there's also significant within-country variation as well. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope very much you've enjoyed this podcast. <laughs>